Let's pray together, please. Fathers, we open our Bibles and look into the Word this morning. I pray that you would encourage our hearts and that you would strengthen us in in our walk. Lord, we recognize how weak and fragile we really are. And as we live, we want to please Christ. We want to walk in the truth. We want to let the light of the gospel shine in this dark world. And I just thank you for times like this when we can sit still and we can hear from your word. Help us to focus, encourage our our frail frame, our hearts that are weak, our hands that are weak, our knees that are feeble. Sharpen our focus and strengthen us, encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The last Sunday of October in 2007 is an evening that I know that uh, me and my family will never forget. I will never forget having enjoyed a wonderful evening meal with some dear friends and family members of Fellowship Bible Church here up in Shenandoah. We were on our way down Route 9 above the Shenandoah River Bridge when two young men uh, speeding out of control, crossed the center line and hit me and my wife and my son, who at that time was about nine years old, hit us head on. Now, I was 47 years old at the time, and I had never been in an accident like that. And I have to tell you that I thought a big reason I had never been in an accident like that was because I was a pretty good driver. And I thought that I could handle it. I learned some lessons that evening, I'll tell you, in a way that I had never learned before. In my role as a pastor, I often am with people on their deathbed, but that evening, as I watched them do CPR on one of the two young men who lost their lives in the oncoming vehicle that day, that night, one boy two days later, I was reminded once again of how fragile we really are and how precious life is. I was reminded of how much I was really not in control, even though I could imagine myself to be very much in control. And then there was something else. As I tried to figure out whether I was in heaven or if I was still on earth, and I wasn't sure for a minute, and then as my wife, who was writhing in pain, was down underneath the dashboard, and if you've ever had an airbag go off, you know that it takes a minute to recover from that, And I just had a little bit of trouble getting oriented. My glasses were gone. My son, I turned in the back seat to see how he was doing. And he he was terrified. He couldn't get a sound out. He couldn't breathe in and he couldn't breathe out. And and I was, my door was jammed and I got out and I opened the door. And you know, it wasn't more than just a few minutes. Then the guys from the Blue Ridge Fire, uh, Mountain Fire Company showed up because we were right below them. And I realized in a way that I never had before how important first responders were. I was in need. Traffic was stalled. It was blocked. Some folks came around us. There were major injuries. And the first responders took over. And I needed help. I wasn't in control. What a blessing to recognize that those people were nearby. There is a story in our New Testament that has a a first responder moment to it 
And I thought that it was difficult to have a service like this and not use this passage as our text. It's Luke's gospel in chapter 10, and it is a familiar story. In fact, apart from David and Goliath and the story of baby Jesus and his resurrection later in the cross, I doubt that there's a more familiar story. Maybe Moses crossing the Red Sea, since Charleston Heston did that, Charlton Heston did that some years ago. But this story of the Good Samaritan is a very well-known story, even to people who don't know their Bibles. And by the way, it's on page 521 of the First Responders Bible. If you're using that, feel free to rip that wrap off of there and uh, use that Bible if you wish. Page 521 is where you'll find this story. The story actually breaks itself down into three parts. You're going to see as we look at this story that... um, that there is an, it, it is an occurrence that took place in the life of Jesus. Now, some of you, I recognize, might not be very familiar with your Bibles. Maybe you don't go to church very often, and that's okay. I'm really glad that you're here today, and I hope that you found it very easy to come into Fellowship Bible Church and a warm welcome. I, I trust you found it so. You certainly are warmly welcomed, I'll tell you that. Um, Luke was not one of the apostles or a disciple, as we think of the 12 disciples. Matthew, Mark, and John were, but Luke was not one of the disciples who was close to Jesus, but he lived on the tail end of Christ's ministry and in a few years following. And it was during that time that what Luke did was he sought to put together an orderly, historic, historical, accurate account by researching the life of Christ. And so we have stories in Luke uh, that are in some of the other Gospels, but we also have some stories that are only in Luke, and this is one of them. As Luke, what Luke did, Matthew, Mark, and, Matthew, Mark, and John recorded what they saw when they were with Jesus. If you're in the police work here, you know what it is to, wit- to, to interview witnesses and to ask them, what did you see? And you talk to different ones. And you talk to somebody over here. Well, what did you see? And they saw it all from behind. Then you went to somebody else who saw it all from the front. And then you talked to somebody who saw it all from the side. And you put those pieces together to get a complete account. That's what Matthew, Mark, and John do. They give their perspective of being with Jesus from their vantage point. And then Luke comes along and he does research and he interviews people and he walks around and he talks to people and he writes it all down and he gives an account by researching it. And remarkably, it all lines up really well. And it's a very helpful account of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in his public earthly ministry from age 30 to age 33. One of the things that our Lord did was he was with people an awful lot teaching about the kingdom of God. He was God in the flesh here to communicate God's love to people. And he often told stories, and he's going to tell a story in this passage. But before we get to the second part of, the, of our passage, which is the story, the first part is a question by a very antagonistic person. At the end, then, Jesus is going to ask the man another question, and there's going to be an answer. So we have a question, a story, and an answer. So the first part of our passage, I want to read it, is, um, really represents an incredible opportunity for this individual who's talking to Jesus. And then you're going to see that there's a terrible brutality that's part of the story And then there is a troubling reality at the end of the story. Let's read our passage. It's Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, beginning with verse 25. 
And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, verse 28, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But desiring to justify himself, the man said to Jesus, Well then, who is my neighbor? Now the story, verse 30. And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, that's money, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you And when I, when I come back. Jesus then asked, verse 36, this is the third part of our story, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the man answered Jesus, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Well, it's a fascinating story and we can all find it easy to imagine the scene in our minds. Let's pick it up with uh, point number one or the first part of our our, our message today, the first part of our text, is uh, this idea of an incredible opportunity. Here's what I mean by an incredible opportunity. How would you like it if you could ask Jesus any question you wanted to ask him? This man is in front of the Son of God in the flesh, in person. It really happened, and Luke wrote it down for us. Now, there's an interesting exchange that goes on. The ESV, the English Standard Version that I'm using, translates the word a lawyer. So he was a man who was uh, well-versed in Old Testament law, actually, and and the rule of the, the Jewish community of that day. The ESV translates it as a lawyer, and behold, it says, a lawyer stood up. And then I want you to notice in verse 25, it says, he stood up to do what to Jesus? To put him to the test. He was trying to publicly humiliate Jesus. He was trying to embarrass him by putting him on a spot, by asking a question either that would stump Jesus like, oh man, I I don't know if I ever thought of that, which shows his ignorance of Jesus. Listen, let me give you a clue. Don't ever try to trick Jesus, all right? You just can't do it. So this lawyer stands up and he wants to test Jesus. He doesn't believe that he's the Messiah. He doesn't believe that he's the Son of God. He really has no good explanation for the signs and miracles and wonders that Jesus has been doing. All he knows is that he can't stand it, that this guy thinks he's God in the flesh, and he wants to humiliate him publicly, so he tries to put him to the test. But what's interesting is, though, even though his motives were wrong, he asked exactly the right question. Notice the question he asked. And in fact, if you only had one question to ask Jesus, if you were standing before Jesus in the flesh and you could only ask him one question, I recommend that you use this question. 
This is a great question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's a great question. People who work in the area of first response certainly recognize the fragility of death and how easily it is that just one breath away is eternity. One moment they're driving down the highway and everything is fine, and the next minute they're being slid into the back of a wagon heading to the morgue. And it's over. It is over. Just like that. And so one of the things I want to know is, okay, then after this life, how can I have eternal life? It's a great question. So we begin with this exchange. Okay, we have the lawyer with his insincere question, but it's still a great question. And then Jesus, and you'll, if you study the New Testament and the Gospels and the account of our Lord Jesus, one of the things you'll learn in a hurry is that Jesus was one of those hard kind of teachers. Whenever you ask him a question, he almost always asks you a question back. It's like, wait a minute, I asked you the question. Jesus almost always comes right back and he asks him a question. You see, Jesus knows how to get us to think. And he puts it to the point. And so Jesus comes back with the question, verse 26. Okay, verse 25, the question, the insincere but excellent question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, the question that Jesus asks back when the man wants an answer. So here's the question answer by Jesus, verse 26. Well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, Jesus knew who he was talking to. Jesus understood that this guy was supposed to be an expert in the Mosaic law. That would be the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, and all of the writings that are expanded in our Old Testament to explain the commandments of God that he gave to Moses as to how people are to live. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt have no other gods before me, you know. Okay, And this man was an, it was an expert in the law. He studied it, he wrote about it, he taught about it. He just didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. All right? He didn't want to move into the New Testament. He was stuck in the Old Testament. And so Jesus says to him, Okay then, what do you think is the answer and what do you read in the law? And so the man gives an answer. And Jesus, you'll notice, really likes the answer. Verse 27, the lawyer comes back and he ex- ends up giving the right answer. It says... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. What the lawyer was doing, what the expert in the law was doing was quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind. And then he was quoting from Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 on loving your neighbor as yourself. All right. And notice then, though he asked a question insincerely, he got asked a question back, he gives the right answer, and then Jesus looks at him and says, you have answered correctly. Now go do it. So the guy's kind of set back a little bit. All right, he's like, wait, 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 wait. He didn't expect it to go like that at all. This was not unfolding the way he planned. He was the one that was put on the spot, and he intended to put Jesus on the spot. Jesus turned the tables on him, asked him a question. He lucks out, got the right answer, but he's not done yet. And so look at verse 28. Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Verse 29, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, okay? In other words, he wants to make himself look better. 
He's got to clean up his public image here because this didn't go the way he wanted it to go. Desiring to justify himself says to Jesus, all right then, you can kind of hear in his smarty pants, who's my neighbor? You see, you need to understand that in this era, historically, and in the context of this culture of of Judaism, that a devout Jew had defined his neighbor as another Jew. And he was only required to love other Jews who loved Yahweh, God. Their God, a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The only one true God. There is only one God. But any Gentile, and if you read the Bible, you'll notice that it divides up into Jews and Gentiles. The Bible is very Jewish, especially the New Testament. And Jews were taught that they only had to love other Jews, but that a Gentile, and that was a broad term in Scripture for anybody who was a non-Jew, anybody who wasn't of their nationality, they didn't have to love them. And some of the rabbis had distorted the teaching of Moses in the Old Testament that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. They had defined it down to only Jews who loved Yahweh, who were walking with Yahweh, who were under their identifiable tent, and that everybody else who was a Gentile or a Jew who didn't love God, they could not only did they not have to love them, but that it was okay to hate them. And uh, this was really distorted. Jesus had cleared some of this up in the Sermon on the Mount, where we are in our Sunday morning series, where he said, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It had gotten to where it was okay to love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. So there's just all kinds of distortion. And all of this is whirling around the mind of the lawyer. So he wants to come back at Jesus. He's still trying to stump Jesus. And he knows this is kind of a hard question. And it's controversial because there's different schools of thought that the, that the audience would have been a part of. So he's trying to create division because not everybody agreed as to who my neighbor was. And so he says, then who's my neighbor? And then Jesus does something else he always did. did. If you hang around Jesus and you ask him a question... He'll almost do one of two things. He'll either look back at you and ask you a question and make you think about what you know. Or number two, he launches into a story. And that's what he does. So the first time the guy asks him a question, how do I get eternal life? Excellent question. Jesus asked him a question. He answers correctly. Now he wants to define neighbor. So he asks Jesus a second question. Who's my neighbor? And so then Jesus launches into a story. Now, when Jesus tells these stories, you need to know that it's called a parable. A parable is a story. When we were kids in Sunday school, we used to use this definition. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And what we meant by that, what teachers meant when they were trying to teach us that, is that it was a story that Jesus would tell that we could relate to here on earth. Something that everyone could imagine in their minds. Okay? But it was meant for you to think about and to illustrate a spiritual truth. It really wasn't about the earth part of the story. It was to illustrate a spiritual reality. Now, the thing you got to be careful with with parables is that they basically, they don't break down to where every part of the story has a, a meaning to it. So like in this story that Jesus is going to tell, there's going to, be, there's going to be four main characters. The guy who gets beaten up, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan. So what you don't want to do probably when you're reading this story now is, okay, which one of those guys am I? You might do that. 
But you might say, which one is God? Which one am I? What does the donkey represent? What do the rocks represent? What does the guy's money mean? Okay, you got to be careful breaking a parable down too far and getting meaning out of things that it was never intended to do. Jesus is just going to tell the story, and then you're supposed to do this. You're supposed to ponder it when you're riding a lawnmower or when you're out on patrol and it's boring and you're just sitting there. You're supposed to think about it. So what did, what did he mean by that? Well, wait a minute. And all of a sudden it will click and you'll realize, I know what Jesus was saying now. That's kind of interesting. So the first thing we have is this incredible opportunity that the man had to ask Jesus a question. The second part now is the story, this parable, which is really a terrible brutality. It's a terrible brutality. Let's reread the story. So Jesus, verse 30, replied, and he launches into this story without introduction. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. The reason it was going down is it was about 17 miles apart, these two communities, and and uh, down to Jericho from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was about 3,000-some feet in elevation above the city of Jericho, which was actually below sea level. And he fell among robbers. Okay, so everybody in the audience right away can picture... Number one, what they could picture, what we can't necessarily picture unless you've been there, is what this rocky winding trail through the mountainside for 17 miles, losing elevation, had some real rough parts to it, big boulders, kind of like on uh, a, a western, you know, with the rifleman or something where they would hide behind the rocks and the bandits hide behind the rocks, okay? And so he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. All right, I got that. I can picture that. I got a guy. He's all beat up. It's terrible. It's horrible. It's brutal. And he's half dead. They've stripped everything off him. He's laying there essentially naked or in his underwear. And they've taken anything of value that they can get off of him. And these bandits will take clothing and everything. Take his shoes and his socks off. Just strip him down. They beat the living daylights out of him. And the man is helpless. Verse 31, now by chance, okay, so unplanned and unbeknownst to the whole situation, by chance, a priest was going down the road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now the audience listening and the lawyer listening to this story, okay, remember there's been an exchange and this is part of Jesus' answer as to who is my neighbor. They're thinking, now wait a minute, wait a minute, a priest... That would be a son of Aaron from the Old Testament. Moses' brother, Aaron, was, was the head of the priestly line. And only descendants of Aaron could be priests. They were the highest office of religious function in Israel. The fact that he was going down to Jericho from Jerusalem meant that he had probably just been to the temple where he had led in the religious services. And he had done sacrifices and prayers and now he's riding home on his donkey and he comes around the corner and there lying on the ground is this beat up, beat to a pulp guy. All right. And he's a priest. But did you notice what he does? He moves to the other side of the road and he, I don't want anything to do with that. I, I don't want to get involved. Okay. Now we live in a, a, a really litigating culture and we sometimes wonder um, and we actually have a law now that is supposed to protect people, and it's named after this story, right? The, the Good Samaritan Law. So that if you help somebody, you stop and you help a beaten, poor, bruised, wounded person, you're not in trouble if they end up dying or something goes wrong. You know, you're just doing your best. And you would think, that, and the audience that Jesus had 
who was responding to this story, they thought to themselves, well, the priest, well, he's a religious guy. You think he would care about people. He had just been doing a religious service where he told them, you should love the Lord your God and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And he was doing all his preaching, but he didn't preach. He didn't live what he preached. That's called hypocrisy. It's called hypocrisy. All of us are hypocrites. The church gets accused of being full of hypocrites, but everybody's a hypocrite. We're especially good at pointing out other people's flaws that especially have to do with the very thing we're guilty of. Have you ever noticed that? Things really irritate us that other people do that when we tell ourselves the truth. You know, I actually do the exact same thing. Maybe at a different level. But this guy's a real hypocrite. The next person is the Levite. The Levite. Now, the Levite were sons of Levi, not Aaron, so they weren't as high on the priest rank, and they were like assistant priests. So he's coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he's been serving in the temple, and he's all done with his service, and he's riding home, and he skirts the guy, and he's lying there. So the audience is really engaged with Jesus. I think they can picture exactly what he's talking about. They can picture even on the road, most of them, where about this probably would take place. They can picture what a priest would look like in his priestly garments, riding all piously and pompous on his donkey, getting down there. And then he goes and moves aside. He doesn't help. He's a hypocrite. The Levite does the same thing. And then a Samaritan. Ha. Huh. What you need to understand for this part of the story is that Samaritans were hated by Jews. You need to know that Samaritans were actually half Jewish. They were the descendants of a group of people who were half Jews and, and then they were half Gentile. And so they were, there was a racial tension here. They despised each other. If you're in law enforcement, um, you know very well, and you've been watching the news these days, how race and the political correctness of our day has really made your job so challenging and difficult. You're out there facing all these crazy circumstances, and then all of a sudden something happens, and the next thing you know, you're just doing your job, but now you're a racist. You know, and it's, it's difficult. And race is a huge issue in all country, countries. I've, I've used this illustration many times. It's just amazing that the color of someone's skin or the slant of their eyes or the shape of their nose or the puffiness of their lips would make you say, I can't stand that person. And I discovered this when I was working in Alaska way out in the Eskimo village and I was playing basketball with a bunch of Eskimo young men. I've told this story many times here for our people. And I was playing basketball with a bunch of Eskimos way out in a muddy village up on the Yukon River when I was in college. And there were some other guys walking down the, down the muddy road there. And I, I said, let's get those guys to play. And they said, no, you don't want them. So how come? They're alley-oot. They're alley-oot. Oh, I get it now. They're alley-oot. And then they said, they got those high cheeks. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, those high cheeks gum. We don't do anything to those highs with high cheeks. It's like, what is that all about? I'll tell you what it's about. It's about the pride and the sinfulness of a man's heart. And no matter where you go, there's prejudice and there's racism. And it was incredible in Israel of this day. And between the Jews and the Samaritans, they didn't mess with each other. In fact, if a Jew was on a trip and he was going to walk on a trail that went through Samaria on a road, that went, he was going to go from here to Aunt Matilda's house over there, and it was only 17 miles this way, he would walk 47 miles this way so he didn't have to go on Samaritan land. 
He couldn't see. Kind of like if you know Michigan and Ohio. That's kind of how it is. <laughs> I'm from Michigan. All right. So the deal is there's incredible racism. I do want you to notice, though, how this Samaritan ends up responding. So you see Jesus setting up the story with some tension. All right. The guy that the audience would have expected would have been the first one to respond didn't respond at all. The priest, the guy that the audience would have thought was the second one to respond. He didn't respond at all. The Levite. Now the Samaritan is the one that the audience would have thought would not have responded because he's not going to touch a Jew. And in fact, he might look over at at a Jew who's beaten to a pulp and spit on him and then keep going. That's the attitude. And so the audience is really engaged in the story now. And so it says this, But a Samaritan, verse 33, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, notice first of all, number one, he was moved emotionally. He was moved emotionally. It said he had compassion. And he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil. That would be to, to help it not scab over and to help cleanse it. And then the wine with the alcoholic content to help purify it from any kind of infection. So he took his own oil, his own wine. He binds him up with his wounds, probably using his own clothing. Then he set him on his own animal. And then he walks back and brought him to an inn and took care of him. He took care of him. So not only was he moved emotionally, but number two, he was involved personally. He was involved personally. And the next day, he took out two denarii. Denarii was a, was a, was a kind of, it was a name for money. And in this day and age, in this culture, one denarii was essentially a day's wage. So the average man, if you were working, an average laborer, you would pay him one denarii. Okay? So he took out two denarii, that's two days' wages. So, you know, just do the math. It's pretty hard to reach in your pocket and take out two days' wages and just give it to some Samaritan scum. Two days wages. So not only was he moved emotionally, involved personally, but he helped sacrificially. He ended up walking while that guy rode. Number four, it cost him financially. And then number five, he says to the innkeeper, verse 35, and the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. He evidently had some business he had to go and take care of and then he would be back and he cared for him completely. Number five, he cared for him completely. I got to thinking that that's a pretty good model for first responders. Think about that. You know, you guys and ladies um, who work in that kind of life, In some ways, it's a little bit like being in the pastorate. You're dealing with people in crisis a lot. And after a while, you can get a little bit jaded. You can even talk about people behind their backs. And you can act like, I'm so glad I'm not like that idiot that I just arrested. And I'm so glad that I don't have much. You come into some house and your clothes stink and whatever, and you're picking up people out of their vomit. And it's just really hard to keep the right attitude, isn't it? Why do you serve? Why do you do this? One application of this lesson is that people really matter to God. And God uses people to minister to people. And I thought that was not a bad model for first responders. He was moved emotionally, involved personally, helped sacrificially. It cost him financially, and he cared for him in his completeness, in his entirety. He made sure that he had a way home. He made sure that the innkeeper would take care of him. That's the terrible brutality 
and Jesus is almost done with his story. So we've had this incredible opportunity that the lawyer has had to ask Jesus a specific question, a great question, how do I have eternal life? That question turned into a lesser question, but an equally important question, because it is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, this is how you have eternal life. If you could love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, then cha-ching, Jesus says, you get to go to heaven. So now the guy says, well, if I could just know who my neighbor is, so I know which one I'm supposed to love as myself. He's trying to find a technicality. Jesus tells this story of brutality, and it ends up ending with a very troubling reality. Here it is. Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay when I come back. Now verse 36. Which of these three, Jesus says... Do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Okay, which one's his neighbor? Wait a minute. Those two guys are supposed to hate each other. Samaritans and Jews? The point is, he says, the one who showed mercy. Huh. The one who showed mercy was my neighbor. And then Jesus said, good. Another right answer from our antagonistic lawyer. Lawyers tend to be that way, by the way, I think. Not really. I mean, yeah, really, but don't be offended. Don't leave the church if you're a lawyer. There's preacher jokes, too, you know. And there's something about cops and donuts or something, too. I don't know. That's the end of the story. I got it. Do you get it? All I have to do is love the Lord my God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, and then all I have to do is go love my neighbor as myself, and my neighbor is everybody who needs mercy, and then I get to go to heaven. Yay! (laughs) Wow! And you're thinking about the story, and all of a sudden an incredible reality overcomes you. You can't do this. Right? First of all, I love myself more than God most of the time. Second of all, I can't stand most of my neighbors. So now I got to go to hell, right? That's exactly what the story is supposed to do to you. That's exactly what a parable is supposed to do. You're supposed to roll it around. You're supposed to, Wait a minute. Jesus just told me all I have to do is love him with all my heart, love my neighbors, myself, and, and I get to go to heaven. And then as you walk away and you think, I got it down, I got it down. It's supposed to hit you that I can't do that. I have already failed a million times. And that's how the story ends, right there. And we're supposed to do what? I need to wrap up, so let me just go right to the, cut to the quick. Jesus asked this final question, and even though it was the right answer, it's absolutely incredible. How Jesus leaves the guy hanging in a certain way. But here's where we have to get. Here's what this story is supposed to do to us. You see, the Bible's filled with instruction. There is a parallel. I'm supposed to recognize that I am in need. And that I, sin, has beat me up and left me on the road. And that I need a good neighbor to come rescue me. That I cannot fulfill the law on my own. You see, friends, the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All right, sin keeps us out of God's heaven. 
The Bible goes further and says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of that sin is death. See, so all of us have sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We can't love Him enough to convince Him. With, Are you kidding me? Love God with all my heart, all my soul, and all my mind? But, I mean, I love the Orioles. I love the Redskins and I love the Mountaineers. And I love to go deer hunting. And sometimes I'd rather do that than go to church or love God or... You see? And I love my neighbor as myself. Well, most of my neighbors, I get along pretty well, but that's my truck. You leave it alone. <laughs> see, you know, I always say, if you want to know how you love your neighbor as yourself, whip out a $20 bill and go ring your neighbor's doorbell and say, hey, I got something for you. Give him a $20 bill and walk away. And be just as happy that they have a $20 bill as you have a $20 bill. It doesn't work that way, does it? It's like, that's my $20 bill and I was going to go to Applebee's tonight. See, we have sinful hearts. And Jesus is illustrating to this guy that if you want eternal life, you've got to have help outside yourself. You need a first responder in your life. Your only hope, your only hope is from the outside. You can't do it on your own. All of sin, the wages of that sin is death. But it doesn't stop there. It says, but the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's something else it says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. It says that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. A little bit of the parallel is even while I was beat up by sin, left to die on the road by sin and Satan and the flesh and the world that stomped the living daylights out of me, and I don't have anything to do with God, that even when I was a sinner, God loved me so much that He gave His only begotten Son that if I would just believe in Him, he would give me everlasting life. That's faith that brings salvation. It's our only hope. Here's the neat part of it. Why do I have to accept Jesus Christ as my Savior? Well, Jesus already explained to the guy that if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and you keep the law by loving your neighbor as yourself, you can have eternal life. And what happens when we go to the cross where Jesus died on the cross for our sin and we admit our sinfulness, and we receive the righteousness of God through Christ for us, Jesus loved, the Lord as God, Lord, Jesus loved the Lord as God with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind. He was completely perfect. And Jesus loved his neighbor as himself. Jesus gave up and died for sinners, people who despised him and spat on him and mashed the th crown of thorns into his head and, and beat him. He loved his neighbor as himself and he satisfied the requirements of the law and the demands of a holy God and he'll give it to you for free. He'll give you his credit. He will give you what he's done for free. You turn in your sin at the cross where Jesus died and you receive the righteousness of God and it's a done deal. See, it's like he's the good Samaritan. Jesus is the ultimate good neighbor. He's the ultimate good Samaritan. When I was at my worst... Jesus is at his best. When I have nothing, Jesus comes and takes care of me, takes oil and wine, puts clothing on me, puts me on his donkey, pays my bills. He does everything I never deserved because I'm a Samaritan and he's a Jew. It's amazing. It's a little bit like this girl that's... I was touched by this picture, this fireman statue. I don't know what happened. You can't see in the picture very well. He's on a ladder. Well, we can picture a second-story bedroom window, can't we? And we can imagine how terrified that little girl must have been. And the house is on fire. And what's the greatest thing? Her only hope was when that fireman broke that window and reached in and grabbed her and put him, her in his arms. 
And she, what did she say? Eh, not today. I'm going to try the stairs. Girl, there, is no, there are no stairs. They're gone. Girl, the floor of your bedroom's ready to fall. The whole roof's coming in. You got one chance out of here, and it's in my arms. Listen, that's what Jesus does. He finds us at our worst, in our sinfulness, and he looks at us and he says, I'm your only hope, and I'll do this for you. I'll be your good Samaritan. I'll be your rescuer. That's the message of the Bible, people. The message of the Bible is that God loves sinners so much that he gave Jesus Christ to come die for us, that whosoever would believe in him should have everlasting life. It's our only hope. Amen. Let's bow in prayer. We're going to sing a hymn to close in just a minute, but with your head bowed, and I'm not going to ask you to come forward or raise your hand or anything, but I want to challenge your thinking. What about that good question that guy asked? How can I have eternal life? How can I have eternal life? Interesting how Jesus turned it all around on his head, got the guy to thinking he had it together only to realize that it was an incredible impossibility. It is impossible for me in my own strength to love God with all my heart and to love my neighbor as myself. But God does it for us. That is the difference between Christianity and all other religions. Religion is people trying to reach God in their own strength. Christianity is what God has done for you in Christ because he loves you. And he sent Jesus to rescue you. You talk about a 911 that works. You look at a God that you've offended. You're eaten up with sin, beaten down and laying on the road. And he sends his best rescuer, his only son, to come to take your sin, to give you his life, his righteousness, to make you whole again. I just want to ask you, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior today? Is your faith and trust in Christ and your sin forgiven? We sometimes say it's as simple as ABCs. A, admit that you're a sinner, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All means all. B, A, all have sinned. B, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That whosoever believeth in him, that's faith. It's only by faith that you come to God. When your sin has beaten you down enough, and you're humble, you go to God and you ask for forgiveness. And by faith, receive that forgiveness. A, I admit that I'm a sinner. B, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That whosoever believeth in him. And C, I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. Paul said in Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead... You will be saved. You believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You will be saved. The old things have passed away. All things become new. So that's my challenge today. I was trying to think, what's the greatest thing Fellowship Bible Church can give you? A free Bible from the Mike Gallagher show? Best thing we can give you is the words of eternal life from our Bible how to make sure you're going to heaven. Jump out of that window into the arms of that rescuer and go down the ladder with him. Father, would you please challenge our hearts and clear our minds today and thank you for loving us so much that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sin. Thank you for this interesting story that we've unpacked this morning and looked at and unfolded. Help us to ponder it and uh, use it to challenge us. And thank you again so much for these first responders who are here, these emergency responders, team people. 
Bless them, protect them. They don't know what the day holds. They don't know what's going to happen tonight. They don't know what tomorrow holds. None of us do. So help us to turn our eyes to you. To be born again in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.